Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, it's good to be back. It's been a couple of weeks that I've been on here. You might have uh, been with Dan and Nathan in the last chat. Highly recommend listening to that one about the history of Christianity and science. Definitely worth listening to. Um, tonight we're talking about philosophical arguments for God with Chad McIntosh or McIntosh, uh, depending on how I'm meant to pronounce that. We'll bring him on the screen. He can correct me uh hi chad welcome and we've got dan uh with us as well have i is it how would you pronounce it mcintosh mcintosh just the a is not there yeah (laughs) my bad my bad um welcome welcome to our uh festive last of 2021 uh podcast show video youtube thing um it's good to have you uh tell us a little bit about where you're based and what you do and then we'll kind of start going into the philosophical arguments for God from there. Sure. Well, I live in central Ohio with my wife and two kids. My wife's a doctor here in town, and I have the privilege of staying home and raising uh, raising the kiddos and doing philosophy uh, on the side when I can. Well, actually, I'll be teaching a few courses uh, here next uh, spring semester at a local university uh, and working on ra- working around the house. Nice. Good, good balance of mm-hmm. the two things there. Um, what got you into philosophy? Yeah, that it's kind of a crazy story. Is uh, I got kicked out of my high school for fighting, and uh, the only other high school in district was a Christian school. And I think I it was it must have been pretty obvious to the students there that I was a fish out of water because before long they started evangelizing to me, hmm. and. I wanted to return the favor, so I went to a local bookstore and checked out a book called The Atheist Debater's Handbook. And I memorized these arguments, and I was just uh, pummeling these poor high school students who had never really encountered this sort of material before. And uh, long story short, I wound up getting in touch with a youth pastor of my one of my friend's churches who had a degree in philosophy. And... Uh, I thought it was going to go similarly, you know, how, you know, as it was going to go with these uh, poor high school students. And, oh, he just so graciously took these uh, really bad arguments I was learning uh, apart and sent me home with a copy of uh, Reasonable Faith. And I think he maybe even included uh, God, Freedom and Evil by Alvin Plantinga. And I and I was reading these books and I was like, wow, this stuff is like a much higher caliber than this than the stuff that I was reading. I don't know how to answer this stuff. Uh, and so, it, but, but it really piqued my interest in this material. And, and, uh, once I did finally become a Christian, I looked back and, and realized how important that material was and, and wanted to pursue it myself. Nice. That's a, that's a cool way in. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, and a long history of people trying to fight it and then, uh, mm-hmm. come around to it. Um, I yeah. think that's, 
That's cool. And and so I, I guess from that, I, I think your story actually answers the question I was going to ask because there's, there's a common, I don't know how common it is in the circles I run it, but I have definitely heard it online. The sort of argument of, oh, we don't need philosophy as Christians because uh, of that, was it in Paul's letters that uh, I haven't come Colossians. with any clever arguments? Yeah, Colossians. Vain philosophy. Uh, yeah, he uses philosophy there and it's all vain. <laughs> um, so I guess your story answers why that's important. But I, I guess, um, do you have anything further to add from that? Is it just a basic intro to this conversation of, of why you'd recommend or would you recommend it to um, your, your average Christian to, to get engaged with um, with philosophy? Uh, it depends. Uh, I mean, some people just, I mean, honestly, some people just aren't cut out to, to, to do philosophy. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm thinking of like the 70 year old church mouse who's, you know, just loves Jesus and, and has, has no use for uh, an apologetics manual or anything like that. That's just, that's just fine. You know, there's, there's no reason to railroad someone like that for not studying philosophy. But if you're a university student uh, or even a junior high or high school student wrestling with these questions of, about God's existence, uh, reasons to believe um, your faith is true, then absolutely I recommend it. Awesome. So shall we just get stuck in then with some of the, these arguments? So I, I guess um, we're quite appreciative of the, the list of things that you've, you've got here. So mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, happy to start with, with that and, and just kind of ask you questions as we, we go along. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the sort of main, main arguments, um, what are your sort of go-to if you're, you're having a general conversation with, with someone? Where, where would you start in terms of introducing a philosophical case for, for God? Yeah, I guess I would feel them out a little bit and see where they're at. And, uh, you know, depending on it was, you know, di different arguments are going to appeal to different people. And I would want to know a little bit about them to kind of select which argument that I think would have the most chance of success. So it's it's not a, a one size fits all enterprise by any means. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think I think there's the danger of any apologetics is going in thinking you know what they're going to res yeah. respond with and to and uh, and and definitely digging around and getting to know someone. Um, um, I, yeah. I guess just I have a couple of prior questions. I guess before we get into the actual philosophical arguments is. Um, I guess it does it does assume as well, doesn't it? People place sort of value on. On, a, on the the strength of a, of a philosophical argument to sort of motivate belief you know for instance I could I could see someone accepting um, a, an, an argument theoretically and actually saying yes okay um, you know a plus B equals C um, but it doesn't necessarily it's not going to necessarily motivate the heart to actually embrace that content to so say you, know, you could philosophically you know uh, accept that you know, an an argument for for theism is is sound, but it not necessarily motivationally lead to any 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 change. I guess that would be one sort of criticism of sort of what's the you know why why not just share the gospel? Why even why even start out with a, with a philosophical mm -hmm. argument? Yeah, you know, I think that says more about human psychology than it does the value of theistic arguments. I mean, people aren't purely rational creatures for one thing. Um, 
and for another, I mean, something as important as belief in God isn't so easily acquired or lost just based on being presented, you know, one argument. It's usually tied up with a whole host of other beliefs and behaviors. Uh, so convincing non-believers um, can be a goal of theistic arguments, arguments for God, but uh, but there are others. There are many others, actually. So what would some of those be? I mean, uh, I, I guess one immediate that we think of is um, to, to reinforce existing theistic mm -hmm. belief. Um, that's perhaps... right. Cool. Yeah, that's right. So theistic arguments can increase one's own justification if you already believe in God. Uh, or in my own case, theistic arguments can, can uh, the way I think of it is grant rational permission to believe. Uh, right. You know, looking back in my own conversion, I don't know if I would have eventually came uh, came to be a Christian if I hadn't been exposed to theistic arguments. I didn't come to believe because of the arguments themselves, but they acted as a sort of, um, uh, they, they knocked down a lot of intellectual barriers that then later allowed me to come to believe for other reasons. Uh, so, so they can give, give people rational permission to believe. And maybe a last reason would be that we're simply commanded to be able to defend what we believe, right? That's important as Christians <laughs> uh, uh, to be able to uh, give a reason for the hope that's within us. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I, how many how many theistic arguments are there? I know uh, a lot of people may might know the sort of main three that sort of come to most people's mind would be um, some sort of cosmological uh, mm -hmm. argument, some kind of moral argument, or some sort of teleological, maybe. Um, uh, design arguments, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now there are no exaggeration, hundreds of theistic arguments, hundreds. And one thing you have to keep in mind when you mention the cosmological argument, the design argument is that these are really families of arguments, uh, that, that within these families, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of different varieties and versions of these arguments. So that's actually one thing that separates theistic arguments as philosophical arguments from other philosophical arguments generally, is that most philosophical positions that you might encounter, they usually hang or fall on one or two philosophical arguments and then epicycles on that argument. Uh, that's not the case with theism. Theism has the benefit of having hundreds of arguments on its behalf, which is kind of a unique feature. Nice. You, you didn't talk about the ontological, Dan. Eric, Eric, oh, and uh, yeah, I know, but yeah, that one's... Come on, then. Like, <laughs> I don't um, think anyone likes Does anyone like the ontological argument? Apparently Eric does, so um, some, yeah, some you're going to have to fight Eric over that one. Um I guess one thing as well I'd be interested in is what, in terms of the sort of the heritage of theistic arguments, is when when did they sort of become? Have they always been a part of sort of Christianity, or is this something sort of relatively? I know a lot of people go back to sort of Thomas, Thomas Aquinas and his and his um, his five proofs and things like that. But what uh, is this something that has a lot of heritage within sort of the Christian tradition? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it predates just the Christian tradition as well, offering arguments for the existence of a transcendent being. You know, that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and possibly even uh, the pre-Socratics. Um, but yeah, the, the Christians inherited uh, these Greek arguments and, uh, and developed their own. And it's been part of the Christian tradition, intellectual tradition ever since.
So we, as we start then, so in terms of an argument and and discussing its strengths and misconceptions, um, I, I guess I, I quite like that you've you've started off actually not using the ones that I'd, I'd probably go to in in your, the notes you sent through. Right? So na- natural theology, you you've brought that up as part of arguments for God. What what do you mean by natural theology? Because my instinct when I hear natural theology is to think of design argument and sort ah. of possibly lump the two together is that not what you mean by natural theology that is that my amateur philosophy coming coming out no it's it, you probably you might have that association because william paley his famous work is called natural theology uh right. but it's mostly a book on the design argument well natural theology is somewhat of a dated term these days uh it harks back to the days when philosophy and theology had a much much cozier relationship in the academy um but what goes by natural theology these days is really just the philosophical enterprise of giving arguments for theism, uh, the view that there's there's a personal God. That's what we mean by natural theology. And if it were my choice, I would just retire the term natural theology and just talk about theistic arguments. Right. Okay, that, that makes sense. I yeah. guess, what's, what's the grounding for it being natural theology? What's the natural bit? Is that just a note? Well, um, I, I believe the term actually originated in the 1700s uh, to distinguish revealed theology from natural theology. And revealed theology would be uh, reflection on things like sacred scriptures, divine revelation. Natural theology would be uh, the intellectual pursuit of what we can know about God apart from special divine revelation, just by observing and and. Uh, studying nature all by itself yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of the the distinction between general re- revelation and special revelation yeah. in that sense so right. it's things that isn't it I, I understand it's things we can know without necessarily knowing god god actually revealing anything to us we can look into the natural world or your you know via, or or you know through logic and 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 uh, an, an argument as well that's right cool. yeah that's cool okay uh, yeah i've not made that that connection so i guess i do, I do know what it is um and i, I guess in, in terms of strength of argument then would you suggest suggest that there are would would it be that some of these are stronger than others or is that just a very subjective idea of strength um yeah i guess i'm wondering that i think some of these arguments any if you're honest, some of these arguments you gotta say are just weaker than others. Uh, obviously, there's there's going to be a lot of subjectivity in how people evaluate these arguments, you know, and that goes back to the point we made earlier: is that people are not just purely rational creatures, not brains on sticks. Um, but uh, yeah, there's gonna there's gonna be a huge range of of arguments that are that are that seem to be really tight, uh, and arguments that maybe just. I could, you know, it's like you can kind of see it, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe it has a place in a larger structure and a larger case, uh, but all by itself, it wouldn't do much work. Cool. Any further clarification on things, Dan? No, no. I think it'd be good to start discussing some of the um, some of the some of the uh, the arguments we suggested. I think you wanted to start, um, you know, with cosmological arguments. I think would be would be a good place to start. Well, let me say that. Uh, as long as we're talking about theistic arguments, um, in my research uh, of the literature on theistic arguments, in order to sort of impose some order on this vast literature, 
um, I, I found it helpful to distinguish uh, two uh, two categories. Um, well, on, on on one hand, we have traditional theistic arguments, and these are arguments that have sort of a perennial feel to them. They've been arguments that uh, you can find all the way back in uh, Aquinas and Anselm, all the way up to the present. And these are the arguments we've already mentioned, uh, uh, you know, cosmological, teleological, design, moral. Uh, but then there's a whole other group of arguments that, for lack of a better term, I just call non-traditional. And these are arguments that um, they haven't received as much as much attention. Uh, they, they might be novel uh, and uh, they might be just a little more esoteric and not easy to follow. Uh, so let me just go down the list here and, and say the traditional arguments are cosmological, ontological, design, moral, arguments for miracles, experiential arguments, and then pragmatic arguments like Pascal's wager. Non-traditional arguments would be arguments, uh, metaphysical arguments, arguments from things like abstract objects, uh, nomological arguments, arguments from like the laws of nature, axiological arguments would be arguments from kinds of value that are not like moral value. Uh, they might be like deontic value. We can talk about that later if you want. Noological arguments, uh, arguments from like mind or mind related phenomena, like, like knowledge and consciousness, linguistic arguments, anthropological arguments, like C.S. Lewis's argument from desire. And then uh, a last category here would be meta arguments, arguments, um, uh, from so many arguments and uh, uh, sort of cumulative case arguments. Um, so for the purpose of this discussion, let's just bracket non-traditional arguments. If your listeners are interested in those, uh, they could look at my philosoph uh, uh, philosophy compass paper I have uh, where I survey that literature. Uh, and we'll just talk about traditional arguments and uh, look at some classic, classic misconceptions about these arguments and uh, maybe some teasers on some contemporary developments. Sounds good to me. So I guess we could begin with uh, cosmological arguments. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. I just realized I was muted, so you didn't hear anything I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so that all sounds good. Okay, so cosmological arguments, broadly construed, seek to demonstrate the existence of a transcendent cause or explanation of the cosmos or some universal constituent of the cosmos, uh, like things that change or things that are caused things that are in motion or, or things that are contingent. Um, so that's kind of what the cosmological argument is. Uh, Sorry, just, construed... just clarification, mm -hmm. I'm an idiot. Well, contingent, <laughs> what, does, what does contingent mean? Uh, contingent means that it could fail to exist. It doesn't have to exist. Okay. And that's in contrast with uh, necessary. If something's necessary, that means it has to exist. It cannot not exist. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and so a classic misconception here, which I'm sure you guys have heard, is uh, the cosmological argument is everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, <laughs> so the universe has a cause and it's God. And uh, not only is this not, there's no such thing as the cosmological argument, as we talked about earlier. Um, it's actually a family of arguments, but no philosopher, to my knowledge, has ever put this junk argument forward. Um and, and it's obvious why, because it's open to the ridiculous gotcha question, right? Well, if everything has a cause, well, then what caused God? Hmm. Um, now, laymen might be forgiven for this misconception, but I'm just astonished 
again and again, when I see this repeated by professional philosophers in peer reviewed books, uh, it's just, it's inexcusable. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, so how, how do you, uh, respond, respond to that in, in terms of like, I don't know the, the who made the who made God sometimes just, just when you're new to it, it can be, it can be quite a, you know, I know that's not meant to be a question or, or like, isn't it obvious, but what, what is a clear and succinct response to, to who made God? What, um, um, well, is there like a minute answer or something? Uh, well, the minute answer, well, the one second answer is just no one <laughs> because the premise of the argument isn't that everything has a cause. It's, I mean, that is usually a straw man version of the, of the, actual premise which is that say everything that begins to exist has a cause uh and obviously god didn't begin to exist mm. by nature so god wouldn't need to cause so it's just a failure to grasp the premises of the of the argument right from the start right yeah that's, that's yeah. helpful just highlighting the, the the premises first yeah, so there's sort of a hidden premise isn't it, that God is necessary um mm -hmm. so I, I guess what what's to stop someone just saying well um isn't that a bit sort of ad hoc you're just sort of saying god's sort of a brute fact you know you're just you're just saying god's just a brute fact and that's sort of the basis for the start of the start of that argument you know it's very easy for christians just to say oh god's just always always been there but that's not necessarily i guess you know if you're skeptical that the that an entity like that could even exist it does seem um perhaps it could be viewed as a bit presumptuous well, it's just part of the con very concept of God. I mean, it's not, it's not, we're not presuming God exists, but we are presuming the concept of God has content. Uh, we are presuming that it means something to be God. And what it means to be God is that he would be necessarily existent and not need a cause. Um, but it, that also doesn't, and, and if God doesn't need a cause and exists necessarily, that doesn't mean God is uh, is just a brute fact or just a brutally existent entity. Um, that, but that that might get us off on a on a rabbit trail that we we might not want to ch chase. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it just got me thinking ahead, like what I would what I would say if I was trying to get that. I was just sort of thinking, well, again, we don't have to explore. It. I was just thinking, you know, why does God have to be? Well, it assumes there's you know one God. Why not? You know, I guess why why couldn't there be other gods or a god that existed uh that stops you know creates another god and they the previous one stops existing or something there could be some sort of endless chain of, of different gods that there feels like there is a very monotheistic mm. idea of god kind of built into it oh and, yeah and, sure. and, and i think so part of a part of a, a good well-rounded cosmological argument or at least a, a version of one would be to eliminate uh, an infinite regress like that and even a regress again uh, of necessarily existent beings uh, so you would eventually have to terminate the regress in a being that depends on no prior being and to use aquinas's phrase and this is what i'll mean by god right hmm. um but let me let me uh, i think just thinking about your comment a bit more the the question well who made god or what caused god now, that's kind of a silly misunderstanding of the cosmological argument, or at least one version. But there is a version of the cosmological argument that has a premise as its premise. Everything that exists has an explanation. And so if you then come back and say, 
well, then what's God's explanation? That is a very good question, and the theist needs to answer it. So how would you answer that then? So what is the explanation for God? I mean, yeah, uh -huh. that feels much um, more difficult to answer. It <laughs> is a very difficult uh, question to answer. And honestly, I don't think many theists have given a good answer to this question. I uh, and that was the burden of of my dissertation actually is to try to answer this this very question, uh, and um, I, I think just to give like the the thirty second version, um, God exists because God has parts, and the parts parts exist because they depend on each other, um, and so we have a, a network of of mutual dependence where nothing goes unexplained. But that's kind of an idiosy idiosyncratic. Uh, attempt to answer that question, but I don't see many other theists even attempting to answer this question. So I, I do want to give justice to that question because it is real and, and needs to be answered. And is that a question that's posed by uh, non-theists primarily? Would that be a sort of objection that people have commonly raised? Yeah, they'll they'll say like, well, what's God's explanation? And then usually the reply is something they'll 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 punt. Theists will punt to scholastic phrases like well god's existence is uh is his essence it is his very essence to exist um but i you know i just don't find those sorts of answers compelling or in, or, or uh intelligible so i think something more needs to be said about that so cool. I, yeah, go on. yeah well, i guess i was going to say what, so what is the sort of strongest for for me uh presentation then of a of a, of a cosmological argument strongest form well it's gonna it's gonna depend you know what kind of cosmological argument you like uh, Craig, uh william lane craig famously distinguishes three types of cosmological arguments he's got the kalam thomistic and the leibnizian kalam tries to argue for a first cause by eliminating a uh, an infinite past thomistic arguments try to arrive at a necessary being um by eliminating an infinite regress of contingent beings or dependent beings. And the Leibnizian argument uses the principle of sufficient re reason we were just talking about, that everything that exists has an explanation. Um, now, I I think all three versions are pretty solid. Um, and uh, right now, most of the action seems to be with uh, Thomistic cosmological arguments, actually. So that's around sort of contingency and yeah, that right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I guess something I guess how would we get from a because obviously with these arguments is what is the purpose of those arguments? Are they to um, you know simply show that belief in that, that theistic belief is is rational uh, and reasonable? Or is it intended to persuade someone to embrace the conclusion of that uh, of that in terms of motivate motivationally? And if if so, what's what's the value of just persuading someone of theism uh, rather than necessarily going any further? So, is there are there any arguments that would uh, argue for something more? in line with the sort of triune, triune yeah. theism of, of uh, the sort of Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we could discuss uh, one of these kinds of uh, arguments a little bit later, but typically, yeah, the, the, uh, 
they would offer, or apologists or philosophers, they would offer, say, a generic argument for theism and then follow that up with an argument for the resurrection or an argument for the reliability of the Bible or something like that. Now, I think right. that's actually kind of a bad approach uh, because I think uh, there's good reason to uh, just start with an argument from the resurrection. Just start with uh, an argument for the re reliability of the Bible. We don't necessarily need to uh, have this preamble on ge on generic theistic arguments before we just uh, hit the home run there. Yeah. That's probably where I'd lean to <clears throat> anyway, mm -hmm. just because I don't have that philosophical um, grounding really to feel confident to jump straight. I mean, I, I can sort of summarize the Kalam and maybe a tiny bit of necessity, but like Dan said, I think before we came on actually, that the moral argument's been probably more something that I would naturally go to. But even, well, even then, I think there's, and we'll get to moral in a, in a bit, I think. My inclination is definitely well. Let's let's talk about Jesus' resurrection and, mm. and Bible, uh, and figure that stuff out. And, and maybe um, if if the philosophical comes up, then we can look at that together, kind of. And let's let's figure out what, what that looks like. And I'll point you to some resources. Um, but yeah, I think that's yeah, helpful. So I, I mean, you, you've talked about um, at least one misconception: so the who who made God. That's mm -hmm. really like. Uh, regular one. The other one that I'm uh, aware of, and I don't know if it's classed as a misconception really, but it's like the response is, well, that doesn't actually point to a God. Mm. Um, it just some element of, uh, I think that's a, a Dillahunty and a few other atheists are very much on this, that you can recite the Kalam, but it doesn't actually point to a God. Uh, right. So I, I guess that's focusing on the Kalama lit a little bit. Is that a misconception of that can be laid at the door of any of the cosmological arguments? But um... well, we have to keep in mind, uh, you know, what what the aim of a particular argument is, uh, and um, what, if the aim of a particular theistic argument is just to argue that that um, God exists. Um, and whereby God, we mean uh, we we mean uh, a personal being with at least one godlike attribute, like necessity, godlike power or knowledge, ground of morality, creator, designer of the natural world, and so forth. If you can establish that there is a concrete, necessary being, well, then if that's the aim of a of the theistic argument, that's a good theistic argument. Um, that it doesn't prove that this concrete, necessary being uh, is a trinity. Well, that, that was never part of the aim of the argument in the first place. You'll have to resort to other arguments uh, to, to fill out uh, your, your concept of God. So we, we can't expect individual arguments to, to pull too much weight. Does that just sort of highlight a limitation in um, of, of theistic arguments if it's related to sort of general revelation? Is there is a limitation in what you can, what, uh, you know, what you, epistemic you can know from the natural world that there is this very clear divide between you know what you're going to require to go a bit further is going to require special revelation and actually general revelation is only going to take you so far perhaps to the point of theistic belief but not necessarily any further no i think it just uh and because you know if we have if we combine the very modest conclusions of of let's just say a dozen philosophical arguments together, we could have a very filled out concept of God at the end. 
Um, what I think it points to is just that we shouldn't expect too much of individual arguments. We we shouldn't try to prove too much uh, with with uh, a, a simple syllogism or a simple argument. Um, I mean, <laughs> that's that, that has all the you know if you if you encounter an argument. And the conclusion is, therefore, the God of Christian theism is true. He's triune and Jesus rose from the dead and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's, you know, you better start reaching for your wallet at that point, right? Uh, that's <laughs> uh, that's uh, what charlatans do. So, uh, no, we have to make our arguments have much more modest aims, uh, keep it simple, and then maybe uh, piece together these conclusions at the end for a filled out concept. That's really helpful. I think sometimes I've... I've mis maybe misread how some of these arguments have been used, even by William Lane Craig, and it, and sort of I've laid too much weight on what I think he's saying, hmm. and then when I've come to actually using or or at least just pointing someone to it, I've then expected more from that argument than I've actually recognised. And I think maybe even you can see how that might happen with with some of the responses that uh, online like. Callum argument debunked as he yeah. is, uh, is often uh, thrown around. What is it debunking <laughs> really when, when what, what is the Kalam um, trying to do and, and then go, go from there. I think that's really, a really helpful um, thought before we look at other sort of cosmological things. There's, there's um, a question here in the chat, which might, might help a little bit with our conversation there's one one thing i'd need defining a little bit and the other um links into to cosmological arguments so um first off do you hold to divine simplicity and i guess within that question are uh, if you have a short definition of what divine simplicity is that'd be helpful and then you can see the question on the screen there uh, but for the podcast, do you have to hold to divine simplicity to have the strongest cosmological argument? So divine simplicity is the view that God is completely bereft of metaphysical complexity. Uh, there are no metaphysical, real metaphysical distinctions within God. I do not hold that view. Uh, I think that is more fitting of an Islamic or Jewish conception of God. Um I think it's fundamentally anti-Trinitarian, and when you look at the history of the doctrine, um, I think there are some precursors of the doctrine uh, that, that predate Aquinas, but mostly uh, uh, we inherit this strong doctrine from Aquinas, who got it from Islamic commentators on Aristotle, and they... Uh, reworked it uh, explicitly in the form of anti-Trinitarian arguments. And uh, I'm just not willing to, to follow that sort of uh, um, historical <laughs> argument here. Uh, oh. So, so no, I reject divine simplicity um, wholeheartedly. Now, do you, I, I do think that there's an interesting cosmological argument that you can give for, for a simple being. And that's just the, a regress of dependence. Uh, you know, if one thing depends on another and that thing depends on another uh, and it can't go on forever, well, you, you must have an, a completely independent being, including uh, that being itself. It can't depend on anything else. But a completely independent being, a, a, a being that depends on nothing at all, must be absolutely simple. So, uh, yeah, that would be a, that would be a, I think it's a strong argument. And 
for people who reject the divine simplicity that will have to say something about that. Hopefully that helps uh, Dean, whose question that was. Um, uh, I guess I, I, I'm quite, I didn't realize that uh, divine simplicity has that kind of history. So that was quite uh, interesting. And uh, I think Eric has voiced that quite well with what and several <laughs> exclamation marks. Um, so um, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, Does, doesn't the Kalam itself have, you know, origins in, you know, in Islamic philosophy itself? Sure, uh, but the I mean the content of the Kalam argument is just fine. That's consistent with yeah. a, a, a Christian God, um, but an absolutely simple concept of God? No, I don't think that's consistent with a Trinitarian concept of God in the least. Really are, there, are, there, are there any philosophers um, who hold the divine simplicity who also um, promote these arguments as well? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, there's plenty. I mean, most Thomistic philosophers will promote these arguments. Um, some chase at these arguments, but most Thomistic philosophers hold hold both value in these arguments and and hold the divine simplicity. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Rather than going down the rabbit hole of divine simplicity, that because Thomas the Trinitarian, that that's quite interesting. So anyway, that's that's where my brain's just gone. Uh, I, are there any other sort of misconceptions that are uh, maybe not so common, especially with cosmological, that you think are important for for Christians to know about and not? I, I guess it's what what are the trappings for Christians when it, when engaging with cosmological arguments that you hear them misused? I, I like the one that we, that you already stated is that we put too much weight on them, and I think that's really mm -hmm. helpful. Is there anything else that you would sort of um, you've you've heard? Christians sort of regurgitate some of these arguments and, and you go, oh man, please don't do that. Um, yeah. It would just be the the one I mentioned, uh, the, the, if everything has a cause, the universe has a cause. Um, so just avoid that argument. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, nice. And then you, you've got a little note here that there's some contemporary developments in, in this argument. So I, I guess what, if they're so old, can they change? And um, ah, yeah. <laughs> what can we develop on them? I mean, we, we live in such an interesting time with such brilliant philosophers that it seems like uh, I get updates on, on uh, you know, the what's being published in philosophy. And it seems like every update includes a new twist on a cosmological argument or a new twist on an ontological argument. But what's all the rage these days with, with cosmological arguments is um they're they're being given by philosophers uh, a modal twist and now modality is just the the logic of possibility and uh necessity and so in general these sort of modal cosmological arguments rely on more modest premises so uh for example rather than say that whatever is contingent has a cause they'll say that whatever is contingent possibly has a cause hmm. and they'll uh, and it's probably a bit technical to try to go through here, but uh, they'll arrive then uh, at the conclusion that uh, even even from a modest premise like that, that um, that whatever uh, is contingent possibly has a cause. Um, if all of reality is contingent, uh, then all of reality must have a cause. So that's kind of the 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 contemporary development that's going on right now is is are these sort of like category of modal ontological arguments okay 
So what what are the what are the kind of strongest um, arguments against cosmological arguments? They're coming from philosophy or from science, because a lot of the the arguments um, that that seem to be framed against something like the Kalam tend to be uh, often rooted in um, you know things like the multiverse and mm-hmm. and things that seek to um, undermine the first premise. Um, what, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you have to take it argument by argument. Uh, for the Kalam, yeah, uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. You often hear appeals to quantum mechanics as as having counterexamples to that premise. Or the universe began to exist. Uh, you can find there's no shortage of cosmological models out there that require an eternal universe, not one that's finite in the past. Uh, but that would be the Kalam. But, the, but those, uh, those, again, are just scientific objections. Uh, you have philosophers offer philosophical objections to these as well. You just have to take it argu- argument by argument. And, and no premise is going to be rationally undeniable in any of these arguments. You know, um, These arguments don't reach the level of mathematical proofs. Uh, they're, not, they're not like uh, tools with which you can uh, bludgeon someone into certainty. Mm. Uh, they're, you know, they, that being said... No philosophical argument is like that. Uh, as far as th- philosophical arguments go, um, theistic arguments are just as good as philosophical arguments generally. And so it's just going to depend on the weakest the weakest premise of a particular argument. Nice. And so that's, that's all helpful. Um, anything further on cosmological arguments? I'm, uh, I'm good to move, move on to the, to the next. There's no questions coming in for, for cosmological side of things um the next one ontological and mm-hmm. ontological is that purpose no that tell you i always get ontological what's ontological let me let chad explain yeah, so ontological arguments traditionally characterized seek to demonstrate the existence of god based on the very idea or concept of god okay yeah right Mm-hmm. And the so, classic, yeah, yeah go give, ahead. Give a give a classic example then of that, and I'll I'll, I'll probably recognize it, but I'll, I'll get them mixed up. Um, well, the classic example would be Anselm's, which is uh, God. He defines God as the very concept of God is that God is the greatest conceivable being. Oh, okay. um, yeah, got it. So if he's the greatest conceivable being, it's greater to exist in reality than just in the mind. Um, so he must exist in reality. That's kind of a classic, very informal way of putting the argument. Now, a misconception about this is that the argument assumes that existence is a predicate. Uh, you, you may have heard that. This is a slogan that comes from Kant. The idea is that uh, we can't just say God must exist because he's the greatest possible being or conceivable being, and it's greater to exist than not to exist because existence is not a predicate or a property things have on top of all the other of all their other properties. Things exist first, so to speak, and then have properties, right? Uh, right. You can't just add existence on top of a thing as if it's just another one of their properties. Um, now, I say that's a misconception because even though that's probably a good criticism of, of at least one version of Anselm's ontological arguments, it's widely recognized now that there are multiple versions of, of the ontological argument in Anselm and of course, among authors today, where 
where this problem just doesn't even touch the argument at all. So I remember listening. To, uh, did Planting, uh, Alvin Planting, uh, come up with a has got an ontological argument? Is it? Am I right? Or, yes, that's yeah. right. He's very well yeah. known for for his ontological argument. So I remember hearing that and just thinking, yeah, like like that. Like if it, you're like, I, yeah, that just seems right. Mm -hmm. But it, the the thing I always one of the reasons why I just don't I have very little appreciation for ontological ontological arguments is they just seem to have very little or no motivational power like they seem like a trick of the mind like yeah like yeah yeah that seems like that makes sense but uh -huh. i don't care like it's got, <laughs> it's got it's got like no like it's got zero motivational power whereas i think something like the kalam or especially more so probably the the moral argument of theistic argument seem like they have it has the theistic, the moral argument has the most sort of motivational power like yeah. you can just feel you're like oh that's hard to get around like i have to do something with that if that's the case whereas with ontological argument it, it it just and again, I'm not not, not knocking it as an art like yeah, mm. it, it's it's fascinating, but it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's got any emotional drive to like ugh, you just. It, it, <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely one of the more esoteric arguments for God's mm. existence for sure. I mean, this is an argument that that metaphysicians and logicians just love, right? This yeah. is their wheelhouse. This is not typically going to be the, the argument that's going to move the man on the street. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, but that, but, but like you said, that's not a knock on the argument. Um, that's, that's just, uh, I mean, it's not like arguments have, have these, uh, um, properties themselves of, um, you know, being more or less heartwarming. That's just our own reaction to the arguments. Right. I mean, Bertrand Russell, but again, he was, he was, a you know, he was a philosopher's philosopher and a logician. Uh, he describes in his memoir uh, the moment when he came to see that the ontological argument is sound, and he said it nearly. Uh, uh, he said it nearly knocked him to his feet. <laughs> <laughs> so it does strike some people as being, uh, you know, having some personal impact. Uh, but yeah, I could definitely see how this is not going to reach a lot of people. It didn't he convert him though. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it probably. I I would be very surprised if there's no one out there who was not converted by the ontological. I was, I was meaning specifically Bertrand Russell. Oh, oh yeah, he eventually changed his mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what would be uh, what would be the best of because what, what would you say from your perspective? What's the strongest version of of an ontological argument? Well, what philosophers have come to appreciate is that we don't need to assume that existence is a predicate. All we need to assume is that necessary existence is a predicate or a property, uh, and and it is. It obviously is. Um, uh, you know, things can exist either necessarily or not. Um, and so, given that, uh, now, now here's where it gets a little technical. Um, if something is possible, that means uh, it could possibly exist. We can imagine a scenario where it exists. Now, if it's possibly now if something is necessary, that means it's there in every conceivable scenario. Um, now, if something is possibly necessary, there's an inference in modal logic that allows you to say it is necessary. Uh, that means because if it's possibly necessary, that means there's Same a scenario where the necessary thing exists. Uh, but if it's necessary, it exists in all scenarios, right? Um, so it all comes down to the very possibility of a necessarily existent being. Is a necessary being possible 
That's what the ontological comes uh, argument comes down to. That's what planning has come down to. Uh, Hartshorn's uh, Anselm's versions of Anselm's, uh, and that's where the the debate now is: is can we show that God's existence is even possible? If we can, the ontological argument is sound. That's where it gets you. That's why I liked it because it's sort of a it teases you. You're like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, that seems reasonable. And they're like, ah, I've got you. That's it. <laughs> what exists now? Now it's, let uh, me it... go ahead. No, no, no. Just I'm just taking a bit. Now, so that's the sort of state of play is whether or not God's existence is possible. And you have arguments pro and con. Now, uh, a contemporary development here is uh, comes from the philosopher Eugen Nagasawa in his book, Maximal God. He thinks we can avoid this whole debate about God's possible existence simply by defining God as the being with the maximal degree of knowledge, power, and goodness that's mutually consistent. Uh, whatever conception of those attributes meets that extremity, their instantiation is now possible by definition. Uh, and hence, there's no need to provide an additional argument for the possibility uh, premise of the ontological argument. It circumvents the entire debate, which is a very clever move. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, that's, again, a little, it feels like a little, uh, like like it's more like a trick, but um, I think that's kind of a, a cool thing. No, 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 I, I, I like that. Um, no, it's, it's interesting. I think, um, like what Phil said, you kind of feel like, you know, how... Your general assumption is like they're old arguments. How are you still developing them? But um, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of research going into improving them and and uh, trying to. I guess that's 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 the purpose of philosophy, isn't it? To to mm. kind of you know to listen to criticism and to either change or or adapt. Um, you know, in light of that criticism, to produce something that's stronger and and stands up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like those theistic arguments are all going in the in the right direction. Um. Hi there, this is Phil Dunkoff. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. So what, what are some sort of common misunderstandings of, of ontological arguments? I know there's certain, you know, people have said about, oh, well, um, you know, was it like the the, uh, the like the island argument about there being, well, if you can you can imagine this perfect island, then yeah. um, then it must necessarily, you know, exist. <laughs> yeah, so that would be one. The problem there would be just that uh, there's, there's no um, there's no agreed upon uh, concept of what a perfect island would be, right? Um, as Alvin Plantinga says, he's like, you know, uh, you you tell me your idea of a perfect island, and uh, I can always think of one more pretty uh, island dancer and uh, a few mm-hmm. more, you know, uh, palm trees swaying. Uh, and so the problem there is that these concepts don't have what he calls intrinsic. Um, maximums uh so there's nothing going to be there's nothing about the concept of an island that's going to make it like more perfect than another uh whereas there is something like that when it comes to a person uh so i am more perfect than another person uh or i mean speaking metaphysically here if i have more knowledge right 
or if there's a, or if I'm, if I have more goodness or if I have more power, you know, and if these, these do, these are, uh, these do have intrinsic maximums, you know, there is something of, uh, maximum knowledge, maximum power, maximum goodness. Uh, and at those limits is where we identify the concept of God. But, but on then, I mean, but then, so is there sort of like a, a threshold then for goodness because can't you just say the same thing about goodness and say well there'll always be you could always be better like what does it what does it mean to be I, yeah i don't i don't quite get the distinction I, I, i'm trying to i'm trying to think in my head like if you think about an island yeah you could always have one more palm tree uh -huh. one more grain of sand mm -hmm. um in 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 the sense that you can but then if you flip that to persons you could have mm -hmm. someone who is um you know one dial you know one one a little bit kinder uh, mm -hmm. or uh yeah i i'm trying to think because that, that still works on a it still seems like that's a sort of gradient there's not like a a threshold for what does it mean well it seems like if you well omnipotence and goodness are a little bit harder to define um you know just take omniscience for example that's pretty clear uh you yeah. know uh you know you're omniscient you know you're maximally knowledgeable if you know all truths and believe no falsehoods um let's just say you're perfectly good if um there's there's no evil that you could commit and for any good um that's you could either create it or permissibly create a, an alternative or something like that um so uh there's not yeah i don't see i don't see the yeah i guess i don't see the concern mm. Yeah, I, I think I kind of see see what you're saying, Dan, as as well. That while there might be maximums, it's always like that child childhood argument of plus one. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I get it in terms of like knowledge. Yeah, like obviously there is a there's a threshold in the sense that you know you can only you can either you can you can know all true things. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can know. Um, and then if you don't, then you obviously are not. Um, but it's just, it's hard. I think the, the whole notion of goodness is always feels mm. it's, it's in a slightly different category instead of, because yeah, I'm not sure yeah, if that's the case. No, I, don't, I don't read around this sort of stuff. I just think in my head. Yeah. And, it's been a long time um, since I read on the attribute of goodness. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. I, 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 I wish I had a better answer for, uh, no, no, it's okay. it's, on, it's okay. on the, it's just, the intrinsic maximum of goodness. Yeah. Um, you got, it's, it's, it's all right to not know everything. Yeah, yeah it's all right not to know. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, uh, should we keep moving? Should we, should we go on to um, design? Design arguments. Design. Well, have, we, have we done an, I think we did talk about developments in the ontological, but I, I quite like the design, so I'm, I'm going to jump straight ahead. So um, design, we would design be where fine tuning kind of comes in. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so there's there is this thing that exists that is Earth. It looks like it's complex slash designed. Therefore, God kind of argument. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I would put it that way, but uh, <laughs> you're you're in the ballpark. Cool. We'll go. That's that's my that's my own version of it. So that's that's where I'm starting from. So give give us a stronger version of the design argument. Uh. Well. Um. You have you could offer many different design arguments. Again, these are families of arguments. Yeah. Um, uh, 
uh, you can distinguish. You can, design arguments can be divided up based on the phenomena alleged to be designed. Uh, so you have um, like uh, teleology in nature. Things to things seem to have a purpose or a telos, an end, the goal that they're that they're uh, reaching toward or that they're striving for. Uh, but typically, these are only uh, th only agents have goals, or or at least um, uh, things that are designed by agents have goals. Uh, then you could have um, the origin of biological life itself, um, biological life, uh, which would include things like um, molecular structures and DNA, and then and in the universe. Uh, and here here's where like fine tuning arguments would come in. Okay, and and so. I, I guess where, where would the misconceptions come? I, I, I find them quite powerful. And I think a lot of Christians do. I do know that on the flip side, several Christians I know who weren't Christians to begin with when they, were, they weren't born Christians, they didn't find design arguments that interesting or powerful until they were Christian. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I just, just wonder what are the sort of um, mis misconceptions or from a Christian perspective, what are Christians doing wrong with the, with the design argument? Because I think it's quite common to have it as a go-to. Yeah. Look at the world, which is kind of biblical anyway. We look at the world. It looks created. Therefore, it must be. Um, I, right. I think the misconceptions mostly surround Paley's version of the design argument. And uh, his, you know, the, the, the way that it's normally presented is something like this. Some things in nature resemble a watch. Right. Uh, watches are designed, so we should think that some things in nature are designed too. Um, now, but it's doubtful that Paley's actual argument is like this at all, uh, analogical in this way. Um, rather, Paley draws attention to properties of a watch, which imply design, and then argues that those same properties are also found in things in nature. So the argument structure is, is, is not analogical, it's deductive. If X has these properties, X is designed. Some things in nature have these properties, so some things in nature are designed. It's not that some things in nature merely resemble designed things. It's that they have exactly those features which entail that they are designed. Uh, so that's how Paley's argument, uh, argument probably more accurately goes. Uh, so it's, and, and so that's probably the main misconception is understanding Paley as offering an analogical design argument like that but i think we have a bit of a stronger reading of paley available that, that's helpful actually i think i've probably gone for it it looks it therefore it must be well that's not bad you know that's not a bad uh necessarily a bad argument you know my former professor at calvin college del ratch he's got a paper called perceiving design where he argues you know this whole business of trying to articulate the criteria by which we identify things as designed is misguided. Rather, we just see things and then further designed. We just perceive design. Uh, we can just look at something and tell that it's designed. It's not by picking out this feature or that feature that then we then say, oh, it's designed. No, we just look at it. That's it. That's all we need. Uh, and I think that's a, that's, that, that's a completely valuable and, um, uh, laudable approach to design arguments i like it yeah <laughs> i'll use that <laughs> yeah, smart guy than me says it, it works yeah yeah, yeah well, I, I guess it's trying to think of why there's a re if you if you look at something that has all the hallmarks of 
of design you have to have a good reason to doubt that it's that it's not rather than mm-hmm. i think a lot of people often do they assume they assume that well what's doing the work is you have to if it, it looks designed but actually it's not and you have to show me that it is but actually yeah. it's i don't know i've always thought it's something it's something on the face of it looks like it's designed then you know it's certainly rational to to infer yeah. from that that it is designed um, absolutely know the, the process of that or and uh and you know who would agree with you there daniel is uh, richard dawkins um yes and and that's the burden of his his entire book the blind watchmaker yeah. Uh, in the beginning of that book, he he simply defines biology as the study of things which appear designed. designed yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, he, and he goes on. Obviously, he goes on to say, "No, they're not designed." Um, and and he gives reasons for thinking they're not designed. Right? Uh, th- th- these are the product of natural selection. Um, so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. What 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 do you think is the most um... Yeah, what do you think is the strongest sort of form of those those kinds of arguments? I think I, I personally I quite I, I fine tuning argument. Mm-hmm. I, I I find I've always found fascinating, and I think non theists also find that there's some yeah there's some um, you know warrant to that argument. It certainly makes I think once explained in its strongest form, it certainly makes um, theism more plausible. Like it's consistent with theism. You know, if if, um, yeah, at least takes you that far that it, se- it seems to infer that 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 theism is at the very least plausible. Uh huh. Yeah, I think I I would tend to think that f- fine tuning arguments are among the more powerful design arguments. Although arguments in biology are making something of a comeback. Um, of course, there's there's Michael Behe with Darwin's black box, who's trying to repair you know the sort of uh, Paley's style argument against Darwinian objections. And then there are some arguments, you know, being offered on the basis of uh, information in biological organisms. Um, Alexander Proust has an interesting uh, paper out on, um, on, on how uh, a, the genetic code in DNA is analogous to um, a computer program. Uh, it's exactly analogous to a computer program in that both have bugs, right? They both have bugs, um, which are the hallmark of um, uh, of designed programs. It's kind of kind of an interesting development there, but uh, but yeah, I'm 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 with you, Daniel. That the the strength of the design argument right now is definitely lies in the fine tuning. And what what are some of the common misconceptions then, or other other misconceptions you think of? Say the fine tuning. You know, what would what are the sort of strongest sort of arguments uh, against against the plausibility of, of that argument? Strongest argument against fine tuning is going to be the multiverse, as you've mentioned. And I guess the misconception there is that the multiverse avoids theism. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are lots of reasons to think that even if a multiverse exists that that is no uh implication that theism isn't true um in fact some philosophers think that if theism is true there must be a multiverse uh they think that theism positively predicts a multiverse uh so um just by virtue of there being a multiverse that does not at all um undermine theism it might weaken some versions of the fine-tuning argument um but that's about it I, I guess from our perspective, as as long as there, 
well, at least it seems to be as long as there is a beginning of the universe, as long as the universe has a has a has a beginning, is that what's so? I, I guess as long as a multiverse doesn't challenge that, then it shouldn't be a problem. Or, or is that not the case? No, I think that would be more relevant to the cosmological argument. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I just no. I was just trying to think. Biblical grounds. Yeah, I think multiverse and theism in terms of Christian theism. Yeah, that's what that's what I was sort of getting at. I was just trying to think as long as there's a. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems. I've not heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, it it does seem um, there is something. The multiverse just sounds so weird Ah. that that you can't help but just think. And just well, weirdness doesn't weirdness doesn't mean something's wrong. Is the that's uh, true? That's true. And loads uh, of stuff that's weird. That's true. So. <laughs> one of the uh, more recent books on the multiverse on on the fine tuning argument argues that if multiverse is is real, then if the multiverse is true, then uh, this entails this view in philosophy called Louisian realism which is that there's an infinite number of concrete possible worlds out there. Um, it's like there, where there's a counterpart of everything you can imagine. Uh, there's a counterpart of you in every possible world doing every, you know, any number of things. Um, now, David Lewis, who's, who's the guy who came up with this view originally in his book on the plurality of worlds, he deals with this objection to this view that he calls the incredulous stare, right? <laughs> he says it's, he says that, you know, the most common objection to this view is the incredulous stare. He's like, but that's not really an objection. Uh, <laughs> but, well, I guess it depends on how much value you put in common sense and in philosophical reasoning. Hmm. Um, I tend to put a lot of value in common sense and philosophical reasoning. So I, I would I would think the incredulous stare does have some force, uh, actually. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things where philosophy or, or us – us non-philosophers philosophizers, uh, tend to bring that incredulous there because it just seems that that's totally in, in unprovable. You'll never oh, yeah. be able to prove yeah. multiverse. And so it seems almost more of a step of faith to go multiverse than it does to think God created, especially yeah. if you put weight in terms of resurrection and other evidences for God's existence. Just to defend the science, the cosmologists, they will not, they wouldn't accept what you just said as the case. They do, they do believe they do have, um, you know, ev- some evidence in support of a multiverse. So it's not, and that's, as I was saying before we started, is about 50, but somewhere in the region of 50% of, um, of, of cosmologists would accept the multiverse and they would, they would dispute uh, the sort of classical big bang cosmology. So and, that, that and that's, coming, that's that's growing. Is that coming from the sort of quantum theory r- field of things, where the there's two t- states, um, unless one is observed or something like that? I can't, I can't no, it goes. It goes more. There's more observational data. They're basically saying that the observ- a lot of the observational data they have now fits within the paradigm of a of a multiverse and not necessarily, um, you know, reducible to um, to a. a uh, a, a classical sort of Big Bang um, uh, origin of the universe. Yeah. I can't get into, so I don't understand that. But but that that that's. Um, I, I was listening to um, a, a podcast from a cosmologist a, a few months back, and he was basically saying, yeah, he used to think it was absurd. He'd go to to um, you know academic conferences, and it would be sort of 
not taken seriously, but more recently now over the last sort of de decade, it is a, it's a view that, that's that's no longer viewed that way anymore. And that they will say that there is there is data, observational data that did support that as a sort of hypothesis. Maybe we need to get someone who knows what they're talking about on here and they can try and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm only saying. I'm being very careful what they say. I'm just saying what, what they say. And they, 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 they would say that it's not a view that they would hold without, without evidence. Hmm. There you go. So uh, we've done the rabbit hole of multiverse for for a, a period of time there. Um, developments? Are we have we done any developments on the design? Uh, well, there's a fine... Behe and, and, and things. There's fine tuning, but um, one recent development is is uh, due to Rob Collins. He's kind of the he's the fine tuning guy. You know, he, he's he's been pioneering work on the fine tuning argument for decades now. Um, now he's got an interesting development um, to the fine tuning argument, uh, but but just to sort of contextualize it. Um, you know, in the mid 20th century, physicists discovered how fine tuned for life the universe is fundamental constants and parameters are um, for for intelligent life like ourselves. Um, they have to fall within this infinitesimally tiny range. Uh, and, and, and let's just call it the anthropic range uh, in order for people like you and I to exist, creatures like you and I to exist. Now, what Rob, Rob Collins's recent work is is uh, pushing into is that he's arguing that these, there's an even tinier range, an even tinier range than the anthropic range uh, where the physical constants could assume um, that make the universe optimal for scientific discovery and investigation by beings like us. And he calls this the discoverability optimality range. Um, so, for example, the universe has relatively low entropy all throughout. But beings like us, uh, we... In order to exist, we would need only a regional pocket of low entropy. Um, yet the low entropy all throughout the universe makes the universe optimal for observational discoveries in astrophysics and cosmology, which is precisely what you'd expect if the universe were designed to be favorable for beings like us. So the fact that the values of certain constants actually do fall within the discoverability optimality range is less improbable than even the anthropic range by many, many orders of magnitude. Um, so this is this is taken to be um, even stronger support for theism than even just the anthropic range itself. Hmm. So that's that, that, that's interesting. I've I've come across sort of the observe observability stuff before, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. In, mm. in that way is more just like i think it kind of crept into the sort of goldilocks mm. argument mm -hmm. of this is just right for life just right for humanity and it's just right to to view the universe but not really in any in any details that's quite quite interesting um so what what, what how does the how would a a multiverse sort of challenge a fine tuning argument i get is it is it in the sense that if you've almost got an, a sort of infinite number of, of different universes that you're bound to just yeah have one you know you're firing you know blindly you know and you've got a target you know if you shoot enough times you'll event you know you'll eventually shoot the target and think oh what a great shot that was <laughs> that was completely accident so is that is that is that the sort of main argument against yeah. it? Okay. yeah that's that's the classic multiverse move against the fine tuning yeah and what would be a, what would be a, a response to that? Do you think? Well, you could just go on the tack and just say that 
there's not good evidence for a multiverse. Um, you could argue that um, multiverse theories don't avoid the need for design uh, because multi most multiverse theories require a mechanism for generating universes. But the mechanism itself, um, when you look at what multiverse theorists say about them, uh, needs fine-tuning. Um, so there, there are various things that theists have said in response to the multiverse objection, but um, I'm not I'm not too familiar with them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fine. Maybe uh, you got anything else you want to discuss on the regards to um, design arguments, Phil? Or? No, I'm just um, seeing how 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 much time we got. We might have time. Well, the next the next three do do look interesting. I, I, I think maybe uh, focusing on, on moral um, and maybe we can, yeah, we, can touch a bit on, one. Yeah. we can touch a little bit on miracles and um, sort of experiential closer to the end. We try and aim for the sort of one hour, one and a half hours mark. Sure. Um, so we'll go for moral because that, that is one that's carried a lot of weight alongside design for me. And uh -huh. it. So let, let's, let's go for that. What, what would be, so again, it's a family of arguments, but if you were to be asked a more argument, what kind of what would that sound like for for you? I'd be interested to know before I try and guess one. <laughs> well, there's C Craig's canonical formulation. You know, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist, but they do, uh, obviously, uh, and we can give arguments for that. Uh, and so God exists. Uh, so that would be a very straightforward, simple moral argument for God's existence. Now there are others. Um, you know, the popularity of this argument, I think, has overshadowed so many other interesting moral arguments. And when, when I was doing research on traditional theistic arguments in this this category in particular, I was just blown away at the variety of moral arguments that there are. God, uh, moral arguments have basically, um, there, there is no facet of, of moral uh, experience that hasn't been uh, woven into a theistic argument. It's it's very interesting. What what would be so? Uh, I guess what would be interesting. What what sort of uh, moral arguments have you come across that we might not are not commonly discussed in sort of Christian sort of philo philosophy of religion circles? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a whole group of moral arguments for God just based on uh, the rationality of behaving morally. Uh, so, um, you might think that, uh, God in an afterlife is required for the rationality of behaving morally. Um, so, um, here's an example. Um, it seems that it's always rational to behave morally only if God exists. Why? Well, because acting morally is always rational only if it's always what's ultimately best for me and acting morally, acting morally is always what's ultimately best for me. Only if God exists, since if God does not exist, morality and self-interest come apart, uh, leaving us with the question of why I should be moral when when it's it's not in my interest to be moral, uh, when I'd be worse off for being moral. Um, so uh, it's if if acting morally, if it's always rational to act morally, it seems like you need God in order to, to ground that rationality. Well, tell me, I guess what I was just thinking that I'd love to see what written down but when, when it's saying best for me that seems what, what does it mean for best for me because i can imagine that meaning lots of different things uh -huh. to different different people when you say best for me because right 
Um, well, that could mean, um, yeah, yeah, it could mean uh, different things. But uh, I think I'm trying to remember um, how uh, Stephen Lehman was the argument I just gave, uh, how he defines it. I think he just means like overall well-being. Right. Um, overall well-being. Uh, so not just self-interest. You know, I could think that drinking a 12-pack every day is best for me, but obviously that's not. Um uh, he he thinks that's one's overall objective well-being. Right. Uh, what's 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 most conducive to your flourishing as a human being? Right. Okay. Interesting. So it's mm -hmm. it's not just the morality of community and and impact on others, but your your very self, which is definitely not. That sounded when as you were saying it, it was kind of in, it did feel intuitive that that was fairly strong that. Mm. Um, because one of the arguments, at least from Craig's, tends to the two sort of rabbit trail ha, trails it goes down is well, does objective morals generally exist? Mm -hmm. But then the other is um, the argument around altruism. Like, is there ah, ever yeah. is there ever a point where, um, or, or does altru is altruism actually a reality? Is that is there anything that is? Um, done morally that isn't self-serving in, in and of itself mm -hmm. you know, with a bit of a, a rabbit hole that one well that's that's another argument yeah that's not often brought up is that if there is such a thing as genuine altruism then it's very hard to see how you could come up with genuine alternate altruism on a naturalistic framework um but it's not at all uh odd to think that there could be genuine genuinely altruistic acts in a theistic framework so if there is genuine altruism, yeah, that would be a hat and a feather of, of theism. Yeah, but can can I don't know. I'm not sure. I agree. I I think that 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 even true alt altruism should it exist would still have some survival value. It's just that it would have to be. Um, it's not necessarily something you want everyone to do, but there can be times where obviously the group would benefit from individual well, what, acts of altruism. What we mean by genuine altruism is sacrificial behavior exclusively for another. It incurs no benefit to oneself, one's kin, or one's group. So if that sort of thing exists, then it's it's hard to see how it could in a naturalistic framework. I agree that there are... Um, um, naturalistic explanations of altruism but that's not really what what they mean by altruism uh is not really what i'm calling genuine altruism they're usually okay. yeah they're usually trying to explain explain altruism away they're they're basically saying no it's not real altruism because it does have benefits to one's gene pool down the line blah 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 so that's not really genuine altruism as i'm using the term what, so what what would be because sorry just as interesting so what what would be what would can you think of an example what would be an example of genuine alt altruism um well um adoption of non-relatives uh but i can think of that so i'm just gonna push because this is where i i i i can't do the other stuff but the moral stuff that fascinates me so yeah. i like <laughs> um, because i because I, that's what i'm i guess an example of like that i would say well that still has benefits because then if you're if you're thinking about and an and act like that well you're, you're actually expanding your group you're you're, you're expanding the in-group not, it's not your group though on an evolutionary perspective it's fun, fundamentally not your group but it has benefits to the group so even by if you if you adopt people from outside the group who let's say for the purpose, are not stuff. gonna are not gonna harm the group mm -hmm. having a larger group benefits 
ha does have some off uh, some offset benefits of having you know if you have a larger group than the group next to you um then obviously that will have some sort of survival advantage even though you know it's gonna it's gonna be mm -hmm. the exception i don't i just think i think true altruism is really difficult to yeah in, 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 in yeah i mean examples of difficult true altruism. To, yeah uh, 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 difficult you can always if, if, if you're going to be an annoying sort of anthropologist or yeah. psychologist you can think of like well i think there are some sort you know benefits no i, I agree that. coming up with examples of of genuine altruism as i've defined it it's got to be hard because it's it's easy to always you know peel back a layer and say are you really doing it for you know is there isn't there <laughs> some it's yeah um storage <laughs> Hacksaw Ridge is probably my go-to. Is that when he jumps on the grenade to save his comrades, <laughs> something like that? No, he's, he's basically keeps going up to. He, he's um, a medic, and he's he doesn't take any weapon into. Okay. Um, and he just yeah. keeps rescuing people over and over and over again. And he's just like one more person. That's, one about, more person. that's about as good of an example as I think we can come up with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's and, my go-to. Uh, yeah. What, what's, what's the purpose of that? And under sort of a, a naturalistic theory. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, just, I think altruism is is quite an interesting one, and mm -hmm. I think that does become quite a, a rabbit trail. But I think it, like you, you formulate formulized it there. I think that's quite. I, I find that quite persuasive. I mean, mm. you can then end up just discussing altruism for the rest of the time rather than Christ or or Christianity. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it it is interesting, and in why why are we I guess maybe from a sociological perspective, mm. I don't know if this is true or back it up with data, but it, it feels like humanity is programmed in to be ultra altruistic to an extent, or at least value it when we see it. Um, and that seems odd. Well, here, here's self-sacrifice. Here's an argument you might like, Phil. Uh, uh, and this is also one of these arguments that I don't think are uh, that have received much attention in, in popular apologetics. And it's that the nature of morality is, uh, it seems to be such that we ought to live up to the demands of morality, right? Uh, failure to do so renders us blameworthy. Uh, it, it seems unarguable that none of us can live up to the demands of morality though, right? Mm. Um, and it's a maxim in philosophy that ought implies can. If you ought to do something, you can do that thing. So here's a conundrum. Uh, this is what John Hare calls the moral gap. We ought to live up to the demands of morality, but we seemingly can't. Hmm. And uh, so uh, Hare and others, uh, they offer this elegant solution. We can live up to the demands of morality, not on our own, uh, only if we have the requisite extra human assistance of a loving God in particular, uh, one who offers uh, guidance and sanctification and the like. And other author authors have uh, specifically urged that Christian doctrines like sanctification and forgiveness um, are exactly what's needed for us to live up to the demands of morality. That's cool. I quite, I quite like that. It is. That's interesting. I, there's, there's not too many times. I think with with why I like design is I can pinpoint that through to the creation uh, narrative in Genesis, and you can talk from philosophy into scripture pretty seamlessly. And I think that's why I like moral arguments as well though i have gone off them in the past because it does become um to it, it it becomes very easy to argue like the bible is a moral textbook 
Okay, and, yeah. And so it's very easy to go, well, your God is immoral because he commands X, Y, Z. Um, and it's like, well, those, you then end up in a bit of a, what what is prescriptive, what is, mm-hmm. um, which is a necessary conversation at some point, but that may not have been your intention when you're trying to prove God to begin with. And then they use your moral argument against you. <laughs> you end up with what, what is the Bible? Um, so maybe it works inadvertently, but that's not your intent in the middle of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, but it's quite an interesting one that you've gone from moral orts. We can't fulfill those orts. We need something or someone to guide, help, sanctify. Right. That's really that's really interesting. I, I like that. I have to um, rewind that later. But well, yeah, no, thanks for that. What are some of the the kind of if if we're going to go with sort of William Lane Craig's being the sort of um, sort of standard moral argument? What what are some of the the the, the stronger arguments against against those those that kind of argument? I think you just got to be a, a moral skeptic. You just have to say that there are no objective moral facts or duties, mm-hmm. or or do what you were doing earlier and say there's no genuine moral art, altruism. Or you can deny the principle that ought implies can in the case of the last argument. Um, yeah, you, you've, you've got to be, you got to play the moral skeptic here. I'm trying to think or, of that. Or, right. I was just about to mention and say, uh, or you could just say that uh, moral facts and duties and these things are just sort of like platonic entities out there, necessary features of the universe. Yeah. Which is a weird option. I, 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 I really, I really like that because I, I read his paper and I thought it, it, it's fascinating because what what he's kind of saying is that the argument's got such strength that as a non-theist, I'm pushed to embrace something mm. that feels a bit <laughs> theisticy. Like it's mm-hmm. in that direction. It feels it feels that is you're having to push yourself beyond the the physical, whatever we we mean by that, into something. You know, there are these sugenerous. Uh-huh. moral facts floating around somewhere. Right. You know, I know you don't even describe, but it, it feels like a bit of a capitulation to me. Like, it does, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what people think, but yeah, it does feel like a bit, <laughs> it does, does feel like a bit of a capitulation. It's like, you know, we, who was the other guy? It was, um, if it, there's something about the moral facts, aren't they? Just feel, if you're a non-theist, it's a bit odd. Mm-hmm. It is oh. a bit odd that we all, we all have these, you know, every culture throughout history have had these sort of, you know, core moral expectations that um, we largely agree certain things are good, certain things are bad. There's a bit of debate right. in the grey, <laughs> but there's, you know, we all agree cooperation is good. Um, killing each yeah. other is bad. At least, yeah, murder is, is bad. yeah. So it it it's just it's just weird on atheism, mm-hmm. isn't it? With, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, so I, I take that as a like win for the theists. Uh, yeah, mm. uh, and I think that's why I like altruism because you end up, w- w- yeah, uh, it, it's one of those. I, I think there might be answers out there, but um, they have to be a, sometimes a stretch. Um, at least I find them stretch. Sometimes even that's subjective, but um, that, that's cool. And, and any sort of new arguments that are interesting or developed recently in the moral um moral debate not really uh you know i would just point people towards some of the more neglected arguments uh like arguments f- uh for god based on the rationality of behaving morally um there's the argument i gave like uh, john Hare's argument from the moral gap 
Um, I would really like to see someone develop John Henry Newman's argument from conscience. Um, let's see if I can pull that up here. Uh, yeah. Uh, now here's his argument. Um, step one, guilt, shame, responsibility, and, and so forth. They're only appropriately felt in relation to, to other moral agents. But sometimes we appropriately feel guilt, shame, and responsibility for deeds that are done in secret, uh, deeds that harm no one else. So guilt, shame, and responsibility for deeds done in secret are appropriately felt only if there's another moral agent that's privy to those deeds done in secret. So there's another moral agent that is privy to those deeds. The best explanation of there being another moral agent that's privy to those deeds done in secret is that there's a godlike being that exists. So probably a godlike being that exists. So it's an argument from moral conscience. I like that argument, uh, I, it, but it all hangs on that first step, right? Guilt, shame, and responsibility in these things are only appropriately felt in relation to other moral agents. You could defend that. You've got a good theistic argument. Hmm. That's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, argument from conscience. I like it. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Newman, Newman was a clever dude he was mm. so uh, I'm just aware of time so we've got um, we haven't even touched on miracles and pragmatic I, I think um, there's there's a question in the comments that we'll, we'll go to and then we'll talk briefly on experiential if that's alright but we'll, we might sure. have to pause on the others despite uh, and maybe do a part two uh, in, in 2022 I could also point people to your uh, hundreds of arguments with capturing Christianity. Mm -hmm. I believe we haven't done the push-ups that Cameron <laughs> did, so we'll leave that to Cameron. Um, so th the question was um, argument from beauty, if mm. I can find it. Um, mm -hmm. Do you find that those arguments persuasive and um, any, any resources, just because would like to talk about experiential uh -huh. anything sort of to point people to in terms of engaging with arguments from beauty would be helpful. You know, I haven't really found arguments from beauty to be that persuasive. I think that they can, they have a place in a cumulative case. Um, if, if you can, most arguments from beauty have as a central premise, the objectivity of beauty. Um, if beauty is objective, then yeah, I think that's that's that might actually be just as strong as a moral argument, but it's very hard to show that beauty is objective. Um, now you can get around that by arguing uh, that uh, the very fact that we have an aesthetic sense is evidence of God's existence. You don't even have to presuppose the objectivity of beauty, as some some author uh, some philosophers argue that way instead. Um, so just as far as my own subjective appraisal, I haven't been super impressed with arguments from beauty, but I do think they have a place. And there and there's some interesting work being done on uh, on arguments from beauty at present by like uh, Philip Talon. I think he's at Baylor. I'm probably getting that wrong. Um, but yeah, I think that this are I, I would look for this argument to be uh, um, made more robust in the near future. Mm. That's helpful. I just, just sort of to hop back a little bit, is there such a thing as like instead of arguing for moral objectivity, which sometimes goes down like where is yeah. that objectivity? Is it generally you go to the extremes? Is it ever wrong to kill? Ever wrong to 
and you end up with some pretty awkward conversations around some nasty things in history. Mm-hmm. Is there an argument for moral sense in that regard where objectivity isn't, you don't need a hammer home objectivity, but that we have yeah. a moral sense of some kind? Yeah, 100%. Uh, there are philosophers who make the moral argument based on uh, just simply having um, justified moral beliefs. We don't even have to presuppose that uh, these beliefs um are latching on to ob- like objective entities. But uh, yeah, um, if naturalism is true, there's no reason to think that our moral beliefs would would at all be reliable um, in the same way that maybe we wouldn't think that a, a, a stopped clock is reliable. Okay. That's helpful. Cool. Sorry. Just, just uh, so within, so if we try and wrap this up in sort of 10 minutes, um, that works. Experiential mm-hmm. arguments. Now I'd, so generally, if I, my experience of non-theists is that experiential arguments are quite weak, mm-hmm. but um, m- maybe we can go into why that might be a misconception in a moment. So what would you just, dis- is experiential purely the, the basis of that lots of people have experienced God, therefore there must be a God? Is that a summary or is it is it a little bit more? nuance in that there's some more nuance um but and yeah this is probably this may be the most common reason people give for believing in god Mm. is just their own experience um but as far as massaging experience into sort of a theistic argument the pioneer here is uh john hick um and i mean you you've guys you guys have heard of uh, alvin planiga i don't know if you've heard of uh, william alston but john hick's work really sort of preempted uh, their work in many ways. Uh, and he argued that religious experience is, is so widespread, it's consistent enough, and it's persistent enough that if it is unreliable, then we should think the same of our sense experience generally. Um, so uh, the, the general strategy for arguments from religious experience have taken this sort of form, this sort of parody form. They say um, uh, religious experience uh, is very much like uh, this other kind of experience we have that we normally take to be reliable. So if religious experience is not reliable, well, then neither is this experience. Uh, and Alston's work uh, in his groundbreaking book, Perceiving God, he argues that religious experience is, is basically just like perception, perceptual experience. It has the same epistemic structure. Uh, it's justified in the same way. Uh, and so if you're going to attack religious experience, uh, almost it's inevitable that the arguments that you bring against it are also going to apply to perception generally. Um, so that that's proven to be a pretty powerful way of, of defending the argument from a uh, religious experience. Now, my preferred way is even simpler. And this, this comes from uh, Richard Swinburne. Uh, and he, he just says, he just appeals to this general principle of, of epistemology, which says, Hey, look, if something seems to you to be the case, then probably it is the case. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that God exists, so probably God exists. And now I'm justified in that conclusion until I'm given uh, reason to doubt it. And, and and so far, I haven't been give, given any sufficient reason to doubt it. So, um, yeah, just based on my own sense, uh, yeah. it's my own seeming that God exists, I'm justified in believing God exists. It's a very hard argument to actually counter. Well, uh, yeah. I've not thought of it. It does sound sound weirdly simple. It feels like the mm. ontological argument in that regard. <laughs> like you've just thought him into being because you you sense him. 
Um, yeah, I, I can see why it is hard to counter in that regard. Um, yeah, so now a short, to, to be a short too many ways you can go wrong with that. Yeah, so a shortcoming or a limitation of this argument, which I think you gestured to earlier, is that it only really uh, it's only that's only an argument that really is relevant to you, right? Uh, I mean, if you're talking to a skeptic, they'll just say, "Well, it seems to me God doesn't exist." Um, and so you're at loggerheads, right? There's no way of advancing the conversation. And so the, here's where I want to I want to pinpoint a, a classic misunderstanding about arguments from religious experience. Excuse me. Um, and the misunderstanding is that religious experience has evidential force only to those who have such experiences. Now, obviously, religious experiences will have more force for those who have them. But what this misses is that religious experiences can function as testimonial evidence, which is very powerful uh, to a broader audience. So here's an example. Um, suppose scientists report discovering giant squirrels in northern Minnesota. Uh, now, that would be very unusual, but if you've got no reason to doubt the reports um, or mistrust the scientists uh, and and you've never been to northern Minnesota to check it out yourself, you now have evidence that there's giant squirrels in northern Minnesota. And your evidence increases with the number of reported sightings. Uh, same thing applies to religious experience. People who are otherwise trustworthy report experiences of God. A lot of people, the vast majority of the world's population, in fact, uh, and, in, and this applies uh, in various cultures, at various times, various socioeconomic backgrounds, and so forth. So this is essentially powerful testimonial evidence for the existence of God, just based on the number, the sheer number and variety of religious experiences. Hmm. <laughs> that's not interesting i've not heard it put like that i mean the, the christian relies so much on their testimony that it just sort of mm -hmm. it, it's just a natural part of sharing life but to hear it philosophically grounded is quite quite interesting um dan do you have any thoughts on it no i just i'd, I'd not thought of it like that so it's um yeah it's an interesting um perspective to take on that that's Yes, no, it's a very insightful. I like that. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> cool. I and and any sort of. I mean, you've, you've mentioned John Hick. If someone wants to sort of read up on that, are there any sort of developments on it? Is that something that is is being developed? I know I've definitely not come across it in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't. This is one of the few arguments where I I don't know of any contemporary developments uh i think the i, I think the literature is pretty much stalled out on on john hick and william alston for the most part and keith yandel mm -hmm. cool let's look, look yeah. them up quite like that there's just something, something about that that's just yeah I and mean, it's, it's awfully hard to argue against the experience anyway in, mm -hmm. in general um and I think the, the Christian does have to weigh up experience alongside scripture and alongside um, community. So an individual doesn't trump community and scripture, but it can have weight in, right. in the midst of that. Right. Um, but it's it's still interesting to to know that it's been an in, it's an influential part of the Christian's life to share their testimony with others. Mm -hmm. And that's just been a natural aspect of the Christian faith. And, and yeah, just hear, hearing it grounded is, is quite, quite interesting. So thanks for that.
Um, I guess in each ex argument, I, uh, we we have generally in each conversation, we have a final question of like resources that you'd share. So you've shared resources per argument and, and people that people um, can engage with, philosophers that, that are developing each argument. Are there any resources that you would share, maybe like a, a beginner, intermediate and and mm. further that, that can really start to dig into these um sort of arguments a bit a bit more yeah uh let me just give me one second here no worries so this is a book that just came out um does god exist by uh w david beck uh which i think is a very nice survey of of the traditional style arguments for God's existence. It's got um, some of the history behind the arguments and, and pushes a little bit into some of the contemporary developments. That's a nice resource to have. Uh, another is, well, I can't find it, but um, there's a recent volume out with Bloomsbury called Contemporary Arguments in Natural Theology, um, which is a very nice edited volume on contemporary statements on not just some of the traditional theistic arguments, but also uh, some of the non-traditional arguments. Um, so that's a good one to have. And if you want to stretch your brain a little bit and uh, get a sense of, uh, I don't have that one in front of me either, but get a sense of just how rich and rigorous the enterprise of natural theology is in giving theistic arguments, Get the book uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments from God, for God, edited by Jerry Walls and Trent Doherty. Um, fantastic resource uh, to have on your, on your shelf that, that'll really um, challenge your thinking. That's, that's written by philosophers of the heart. <laughs> cool. That, that's great. Uh, while I, I need to possibly go sort my dog out. Um, Dan, have you got any further questions? I'll be right back. No, that was that was uh, was good. I've just I've just added that book. Uh, Does God exist by um, by Beck? That looks excellent. So that looks like a uh, that looks like a really great book. That's going to be one on payday. I'm going to be uh, I'm going I'm going to be ordering straight away. That looks great. Um, in terms of um, anything you've written, have you got anything that um, that would be useful for us to uh, point people to? Well, there's the article I mentioned earlier on non-traditional arguments that's published in Philosophy Compass. Uh, I've got a companion article on traditional arguments that's sort of in publication limbo right now. But if anyone's interested, I can send that to them. Uh, you know, so if they contact you, they can contact uh, and you contact me. I can just get it to you. Um, so yeah, that's about where that goes. Oh, and uh, and I think you mentioned earlier the the 150 or so arguments on on Cameron's channel. Mm, yeah. uh, you can find a lot of the material there. Did you really go for 150? 150 arguments, yeah. Outlined all, yeah. all. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. Brutal. How long did that take you? It was four hours. Uh, it was around four hours, but it was so you know, uh, it was it actually wound up being so suppressed that uh, I think to give the material it's due it should have been probably closer to eight hours there's <laughs> <laughs> only so much oh. you can be in front of a camera for i mean yeah I, yeah. yeah i think the longest we've done is is three hours and <laughs> that was um 
getting uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you did well to do four hours on that so as well. You've got to have snacks next to you, and I can, I'm not surprised Cameron was doing push-ups now that you, you put it like that. Um, Chad, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been really, really helpful, and, and uh, it's won me around to a few more philosophical arguments. I've been moving away from that kind of argumentation for a little while, partly, I guess, I'm just hearing it being argued so much that you mm -hmm. don't have a way to the Bible. Um, and I, I think there's been a few that you've shared that actually, okay, I can see how it's not just uh, theism in general, which I'm sure there, there's some value in that, but actually the, there's there's something in here that the Christian faith really has strength to answer um, and and especially that moral argument you're talking about with the, mm -hmm. the gap, I thought I thought that was really helpful. So, yeah, appreciate your time. Um, there's there's been some thanks from the chat. So, uh, Dean London Theist, uh, follow Dean on on Twitter with London Theist. He's uh, got some good stuff on there. And uh, Claire from on Facebook has said thank you as well. Eric had to step away, but we've had a few just chatting through uh, as we've chatted. So, thanks for your time, Dan. Any final final thoughts? No, thank you very much, Chad. I'd love to love to have you back to talk about aliens and the gospel <laughs> next year. I think yeah. it would be, it would be a, a good one. That'd so, be uh, good. Be and if you're if you're interested in more of the arguments that do push more explicitly toward a Christian view, uh, yeah, those would be more of like the the arguments from miracles, which unfortunately we didn't get time to discuss today. Yeah, mm. uh, there's clearly more that we can talk about, and mm -hmm. we'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, line up a conversation in 2022. So cheers. I'll, I'll close things up here. So for those of you that have followed along a little while, uh, we do have a Patreon account that helps just cover costs. And there's a few things in the pipeline that we'd like to potentially develop uh, with that. So if you fancy uh, putting a few quid or a few dollars, if you're American, uh, into that pot, that would be amazing. But there's no pressure. We do this for fun and for free. And um, we hope you found it enlightening and enjoyed that. Uh, do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, subscribe share all that all that stuff and um do give us feedback uh, if you're if you listen on the podcast please do rate it and comment on there um it just helps us know if you're enjoying it or not and and let us know what you, what you think and if you've got any suggestions for people that we might be able to talk to again just just ping us a message so thank you and have a good rest of your day evening whatever time it is uh, god bless see you later are you not Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.